In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register or for more info. Okay, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the prophetic biography. We, last time we're talking about uh, some of the events of the ninth year of Hijrah. The ninth year of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's residence in the city of Medina. And we talked about some of the major events and particularly we focused on some of the very, um, you know, tragic passing that also happened with the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ. But we also then talked about the, you know, the passing of uh, the death of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, who was kind of a sworn enemy of the Prophet ﷺ and had you know, dedicated a lot of his energy and a lot of his time to making the life of the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims very extremely difficult. So what we're going to be talking about today is one of the other major events of this particular year of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the the Hajj that occurred in this particular year. So what I mean by that is, that a lot of times people aren't really familiar. The verses of the Qur'an that were revealed about Hajj. So there are two notable verses of the Qur'an that are revealed about Hajj. There are, uh, of course, there's entire passages which talk about all the procedures, the, 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 the process of Hajj, all the rules and regulations of Hajj, how to go about and doing it, so on and so forth. But what I mean by the verses that mandate Hajj, Okay, there are two verses that mandate Hajj, that make Hajj an obligation in Islam. There's one verse in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَتِمُّ الْحَجَّ وَالْعُمْرَةَ لِلَّهِ Right, that fulfill the Hajj, complete the Hajj and the Umrah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second verse that also mandates and obligates Hajj is found in Surah Ali Imran, in which Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Wallahi ala nasi hijjul baiti man istata'a ilahi sabila." That for the sake of Allah alone, it is obligatory upon the people to go and perform the pilgrimage at the house of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, perform the Hajj at the Kaaba. And whosoever is capable of reaching there, whoever can undertake that particular journey. Now, the interesting thing about the um, obligation of Hajj is that these verses were revealed in the sixth year of Hijrah. So they were revealed almost three years ago. And 
the wisdom behind that, many of the scholars mention, is that that came at the time when the Prophet ﷺ made the intention, because in the sixth year of Hijrah, when those verses came down, at that particular point in time, the Muslims did not have a peaceful relationship with the Meccans. The Muslims were at war with the Quraysh. Mecca and Medina were at war with one another. All right, So it was a very difficult and tense situation. In spite of the fact that they were at war with one another, it, we talked about this previously in the Sirah. It almost seems very, you know, unexpected. Unexpected. The Prophet ﷺ gathered together 1,400 companions, 1,400 Sahaba, told them all that we're going for Umrah. They got into their ihram, they got their animals for sacrifice, and they said, we're going for Umrah, we're going to go and perform Umrah, we're going to visit Mecca. When, at that time, there is currently a war going on between Mecca and Medina. So how do you walk into the enemy territory to peacefully perform an act of worship? It just logically, it's not something that is expected. And so it was very unexpected, but the thing that prompted the Prophet ﷺ to do so was the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed the verses commanding the Prophet ﷺ to re-establish the worship at the Kaaba, fulfill the Hajj, fulfill the Umrah for the sake of God. And so that's why the verses about mandating Hajj came down in the sixth year. Of course, we know exactly what happened. The Muslims went, the Quraysh came out, they did not let them perform Umrah at that time. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah was enacted. And basically what the treaty dictated was the Muslims would return back home to Medina, come back a year later, perform the Umrah. Then a year, another year after that, in the eighth year of Hijrah, of course we've talked about this, the Meccans violate the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. They violate the treaty, they break the treaty. The, the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims respond as is appropriate. And they basically go to Mecca, Mecca surrenders itself, and Mecca enters into the fold of Islam. Now another year has passed. Another year has transpired and Mecca, majority of Mecca is Muslim and Mecca is under Muslim leadership at this time. So at this particular point in time, the Prophet ﷺ does something very fascinating. Of course, by the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ibn Ishaq talks about this, that the Prophet ﷺ, remember we talked about the people of Ta'if came um, and they became Muslim in the month of Ramadan. After they departed, the Prophet ﷺ spent the month of Ramadan, the remainder of the month of Ramadan in Medina, and then the month of Shawwal, and then the month of Dhul Qa'dah, and then finally the Prophet ﷺ, he called Abu Bakr anhu. the Prophet ﷺ called for 300 men, 300 individuals to come together. He appointed Abu Bakr anhu and said, you will be the leader of the group. And the Prophet ﷺ sent them that I want you to go and perform Hajj on behalf of the Muslims. And this would be the first Hajj done by this Ummah. By this Ummah. The Prophet ﷺ was not there and we're going to talk about why that was. Alright, that the very first Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ did not go for it. But this was the very first Hajj done by this Ummah. Now, we've already know, and this is something we've talked about, you know, that something this is talked about quite often. Hajj was a pre-existing practice. Hajj was first established by Ibrahim alayhi salam. وَأَذِّنْ فِي النَّاسِ Alright, that Ibrahim alayhi was commanded by God to proclaim and to announce the Hajj. 
At that particular time, of course, Ibrahim started the sunnah, Ismail continued it forward, and it continued on throughout time. Um, at times it was done the way it was supposed to be, and in between at times it was corrupted as a practice. What had happened be- at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, before the time of the Prophet ﷺ, ever since the Arabs of that region had fallen into idol worship for generations now, they basically had corrupted the practice of Hajj. Hajj was basically now a festival, a marketplace, a celebration of false gods and idols, so on and so forth. So it had been thoroughly corrupted. This Hajj that Abu Bakr did was a almost reclamation of the Hajj. It was a reclamation of the Hajj. It was reclaiming the Hajj. And there was a very delicate social and political situation that the Prophet ﷺ needed rectifying, that the Prophet ﷺ wanted to rectify. What was this delicate situation? Mecca had entered into the fold of Islam, meaning Mecca was now part of the Muslim territory. It was under Muslim leadership. And much of Mecca had already entered into Islam. It still does not change the fact that there were people who lived in Mecca who were not Muslim yet, number one. Number two, there were some Bedouin tribes around Mecca who were not Muslim yet. Number three, Mecca still served as one of the business uh, economic centers. So there were caravans and businessmen and people and coming and going, coming and going through and in and out of Mecca constantly. So what that meant was there were people from all over the place who were constantly coming and going uh, in and out of Mecca. And many of them, a lot of times, were not Muslim. So what this resulted in was that for the season of Hajj, because remember, the idol worshippers, the mushrikun, the non-Muslims, they were still observing their form of Hajj. And as they had done for generations, as they had done for generations, maybe centuries, they were expecting to come and have their annual festival. Now, how is that going to be managed? The idols have been broken and thrown out of the Kaaba. They have been, the idols have been removed from all the sacred sites. The Kaaba, the area of the Tawaf, Sa'i, uh, the, the Safa and Marwa, the places of Arafah, Mina. Like, it's all been thrown out from there. And that's true. But there's still going to be a bunch of people coming in expecting for their non-Muslims coming in expecting some type of festival and celebration, and marketplace, and all the things that have happened since, like, for a very, very long time. And that's what they know, and that's what they're expecting. Now, how do you navigate that, right? Without, you know, breaking the will of the people. And at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ, like we talked about just a couple of sessions ago, the Prophet ﷺ also very much had the perspective of how do you bring people closer to Islam. Remember, we talked about this. Sayyidatasaddaquna wa yujahiduna idha aslamu. Right? The, prophet, the patience the Prophet showed with the people of Ta'if. They will give charity. They will fight in the path of Allah. First let them become Muslim. So the Prophet was very motivated to bring people closer to Islam, not push them away. So how do you manage all of this? So the, the strategy was, the Prophet put together a group of 300 people. Amongst them were many senior and very um, noble companions 
um, some senior companions who kind of had the maturity and the wisdom on how to navigate this situation. Abdurrahman bin Auf and some of the senior muhajirun were in the group. Why is that so strategic? Because they were originally Makkan. So if they would go there, they would have pre-existing relationships with these people. They would be able to talk and converse with the people. And for it to not become kind of a combative situation. Like people from outsiders are coming in and telling us what we can and cannot do. So that was the delicacy of the situation. That's how delicate it was. So the Prophet ﷺ puts together a very selected group of 300 people. He appoints Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala as a leader, who is the successor to the Prophet ﷺ, who is originally a Makkan, a Qurashi. And even in the days of Makkah, he was always considered a very respectable you know, uh, statesman of the city of Makkah. So he commands that type of respect. And he said, I want you to go, I want you to establish the proper form of Hajj, and so that we can start to transition the pre-existing culture out of Mecca, and we can start to establish the new culture, the new order, the way things are going to work from this point on forward. So they sent, the Prophet ﷺ sends them off. After the Prophet ﷺ sends them off, shortly after they leave Medina, the Prophet ﷺ receives revelation. Some of the key verses, some of the key ayats from Surah At-Tawbah. Surah At-Tawbah, Surah number 9, are revealed upon the Prophet ﷺ, which announce certain things. Like, إِنَّمَا الْمُشْرِكُونَ نَجَسُونَ فَلَا يَقْرَبُوا الْمَسْجِدَ الْحَرَامَ بَعْدَ عَامِهِمْ هَذَا That those who worship idols instead of God, instead of Allah, they, their belief system is wrong, incorrect. And Allah refers to it as filth. It is the filth of the heart. It is the filth of the soul. That these people worship idols instead of Allah. So they should not come into the sacred precinct after this year. They should not come to the sacred area, particularly at the time of Hajj. Their festival will not take place any longer after this year. All right. If some have coincidentally come without knowing that things are different, that's fine. They're not going to be like shoved out and thrown out and pushed out. They're not going to be allowed to worship their idols on the masjid anymore, that's for sure. But they won't be thrown out of Mecca, but they will be notified that this festival that you have had for so long, that particular festival will not happen anymore. We will be having hajj here, the proper hajj. And so these verses came down upon the Prophet ﷺ. Now, the problem is that Abu Bakr and the Hujjaj, those performing Hajj, have already left. So the Prophet ﷺ called Ali bin Abi Talib. Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He taught him the verses that came down. And then he sent Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu to go and catch up with the group and said, you will accompany them. And the Prophet ﷺ, there were a few points that were going to be made. The first point was that the hajj that basically used to um, you know, be done previously before hajj will not happen here any longer, will not, ha- will not occur here anymore, number one. Number two, and this is going to sound very strange, but it was a very tragic and unfortunate practice before Islam, that when they would come and they would worship at the Kaaba, they used to do something very inappropriate. They used to do tawaf of the Kaaba without their clothes on in the nude. Their twisted mentality was that they said that these clothes 
are filthy, they are dirty, we commit sins in them, we've earned them using unlawful money and things of that nature. So they would shed all of their clothing as like a symbolic gesture of we are shedding all of our you know, baggage. And then they would basically perform the tawaf without clothes on. And that was forbidden, that that is something that will never happen here ever again. That is against the respect of the Kaaba. So these were a few proclamations that had to be made. The, when Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu reached Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, they were not that too far off. They were at the place of Dhul Hulayfa. Dhul Hulayfa was the place where um, the people going from Medina for Hajj and Umrah have to do the ihram from. It's the miqat for the people of Medina, called Dhul Hulayfa. One of the narrations mentions that the Prophet ﷺ didn't just send Ali by himself. But he taught Ali the verses, and then the Prophet ﷺ went himself, and took Ali with him. And when he took Ali with him, when they reached there, the place of Dhul Hulayfa, and Abu Bakr and the Muslims were there, the Prophet ﷺ said, look, the news that we have to deliver is going to be a very bitter pill to swallow for some of them. They're going to be offended by this. We're going to tell them, you can't do your old hajj that you've done for generations. We're going to tell them that this really bizarre and inappropriate practice that they have of doing tawaf without clothes on, okay? But for some reason, I mean, you know, something as strange and bizarre as it may be, if it's been done for a very, very long time, people just think that it's valid. They assume that, you know, it's good, it's important, it's valid, etc. So they're going to be bothered by the fact that they're being told they're not allowed to do this anymore. So all these different things, the Prophet ﷺ at that time, he said that this news is going to be so sensitive to them, and this is going to be a little bit of culture shock to some of these people. So the Prophet ﷺ said, the only way, the way to soften the blow, the way to cushion the, the, the blow, is either I have to deliver the news myself, being the grandson of Abdul Muttalib, it has to be me. Or it has to be somebody from my family. It has to be somebody from Abdul Muttalib's family, Abu Talib's family, Abbas's family. Because they were the leadership, Banu Hashim. It has to be someone from that family who delivers the news. So people don't take it, people, people are able to take it a little bit easier. And that's where the Prophet ﷺ said, Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu will be the one to deliver this news to them. So once that was basically communicated, there was a third item as well that the Prophet ﷺ also said that announced to them. The third item was this. The Prophet ﷺ said, anyone who has a pre-existing peace treaty, understanding with the Muslims, that shall be respected. And that was very important. And that was very profound. Why? Because it was very commonplace at that time that two, two tribes might have had, two groups of people had a peace treaty, had an understanding. But if one became dominant over the other, what would typically happen at that time is that the dominant party, the group that won, would take the peace treaty, would take the understanding and throw it out the window. And say, y'all are now at our mercy. We will decide what we do with you now. And so it was mind-blowing 
for the Prophet ﷺ, that now the Muslims are in control, they control Mecca, they control Medina, they control Ta'if, they control Khaybar, they control this whole region. They're in charge, they won. For the Prophet ﷺ to say, anyone who has a pre-existing understanding with the Muslims, their agreement shall be honored. It shall not be violated. Do not assume just because we won, we're going to take advantage of you now. That's not how we operate. We are an ethical people. We are a God-fearing people. And not only that, but the Prophet ﷺ further communicated, if there's any tribe, any group of people in or around Mecca, anywhere else, who does not have a peace treaty with the Muslims, who does not have a pre-established understanding with the Prophet ﷺ, and they're kind of worried about what their status is. Are we adversaries? Are we in a state of war? The Prophet ﷺ sent the message for them. All of them are being given four months of a guaranteed time of peace. And not only is it just four months of guaranteed time of peace and then we're coming to kill you, that's not the point. The point is we're giving them four months for us to work something out. Four months for us to work something out. Right? So, Allah, uh, so this was by the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Tawbah, Surah Al-Bara'ah. So this was very powerful that the Prophet said, anyone who has peace with us, let's continue peace. And anyone who does not have peace with us, we'll, 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 we'll give you four months time, come and talk to us. Let's work something out. Our goal is not to kill and to see people die. Our goal is to continue peace and to see things work out and to see people prosper as much as possible. So this proclamation was made and then the narration basically goes on. There's a hadith in Bukhari that talks about this, that they gathered together for the Hajj. And, <clears throat> excuse me, on the day of Arafah, on the day of Arafah, which is the main day of Hajj, there's a khutbah that is given. The Imam delivers a khutbah, a sermon. And we're going to be talking about that soon enough when the Prophet ﷺ gave the khutbah, the famous khutbah in Hajjatul Widad the following year. So Abu Bakr ﷺ gave the khutbah. And after he was done with the khutbah, he turned to Ali ﷺ and he said, now you need to deliver to them the information that the Prophet ﷺ has sent with you. So Ali ﷺ, he says at that time, فَقُمْتُ So I stood up. And I basically announced the proclamation from the Prophet ﷺ that the mushrik, the shirk-based festivals that used to happen here in the sacred precinct will not occur here any longer after this year going forward. Number two, that anyone who does not have a pre-existing peace treaty with the Muslims has a duration of four months to work something out. Number three, the Kaaba is a sacred place and all inappropriate practices such as Doing tawaf without your clothes on, that is something that is forbidden and will not be allowed from this point going forward. These are the proclamations from the Prophet ﷺ. And I, a family member of the Prophet ﷺ, Ali bin Abi Talib, bring to you this message. So he made this proclamation. 
And not only that, but at that particular point in time, Abu Hurairah who was amongst the group, the 300 hujjaj who were sent by the Prophet he said many of us were given the same notices by Ali and we were sent out in all different directions to go and wherever we could find groups of people, we would go to them and we would deliver to them that this is the proclamation as has come from the Prophet And that basically was the hajj that was performed at that particular time. The hajj in this way was concluded, and <clears throat> after the hajj was basically concluded, Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, of course the leader of the hajj, and all the 300 companions, they returned back to the city of Medina, and they brought back to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam the report of the fact that the hajj had been conducted successfully. That the Hajj had been, alhamdulillah, bi'idnillah, by the permission and the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it had been conducted, you know, peacefully and successfully. Now, to very briefly talk a little bit about what was the exact, you know, objective and the wisdom behind all of this. So as we talked about, this was the reclamation of Hajj, one of the most sacred, noble, prestigious, you know, acts and deeds in the religion of Islam. Right? One of the most pre- prestigious things in the religion of Islam. Counted amongst the five pillars, according to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the five foundations that Islam is founded upon, one of them is the Hajj. Alright, so it's a very, very important thing. It is a very noble and virtuous and powerful act. Where the Prophet ﷺ said, رَجَعَكَ يَوْمٍ وَلَدَتْهُ أُمُّهُ Somebody who goes and performs the hajj and they do it properly, they return back as if the day that their mother gave birth to them. Meaning that they are free of all of their sins. They have been washed of all of their sins. It's a very powerful thing. And if anybody has actually experienced it, it's a life-changing experience. You are not the same person after Hajj as you were before the Hajj. Or at the very least, you hopefully you should not be. Um, the next thing about the Hajj is that it's also one of the most powerful and beautiful displays of the unity of Islam and humanity and, and the coming together of people from all over the place. It is one of the most remarkable presentations of selflessness and devotion and dedication to God, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where you spend a number of days. The men folk are wearing just the ihram. And um, even the women folk are in the state of the ihram. Meaning everyone is observing the restrictions of the ihram. Where you do not groom and you do not scent and you do not you know, scrub and clean and all those types of things. But you kind of persist forward in this very simple state. Where you are, you know, it's very symbolic, it's very powerful. It's almost like you're sullying you know, yourself to an extent on the outside. But in order to cleanse and purge your soul. And it really reminds us of the fact that who we truly are is spiritual beings. Our souls are what is truly eternal and this body is simply temporary. It, it, it is some of the greatest sacrifices, even physically, some of the most difficult, one of the most physically difficult things that many people will do in their lifetime. All right, that many people will do in their lifetime. From all the walking, to the tawaf, to the sa'i, to the rami, to the jamarat, the waiting, the walking, the praying, the worshipping, the standing and making dua in Arafah, in Arafat. It's a very powerful experience. So this was to reclaim that. And of course, this is part of the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So it's a tradition that has been happening since that time. It connects you to something so powerful. 
So powerful. You know, and, and something that has been there from the very beginning. That it really humbles you and gives you a sense of meaning and purpose about who I am and what my objective and purpose in life is. Now that being said, that's why Hajj had to be reclaimed. But that still does not completely answer the question, why didn't the Prophet ﷺ go himself? And again, ultimately Allah knows best. But there is quite a bit of a discussion of some of the wisdom of this. That, let me explain this much. The, on this year, there were 300 people who went for Hajj. The following year, which we're going to be talking about it, but spoiler alert, when the Prophet ﷺ went for Hajj, there, were, there was over 120,000 people who performed the Hajj. Over 120,000 people. When the Prophet ﷺ was going to go for Hajj, every single you know, Muslim was going to show up. Every single believer was going to come. Crawling if they had to. For that powerful moment. And so the Prophet ﷺ wanted a few things. The idols had been thrown out, as I had mentioned. But the, the, because it takes time to change a culture that has been in place for so long. Like I mentioned, all these different tribes were still going to be showing up at Hajj season, expecting a festival, and still trying to do their own thing. So this all had to be kind of cleaned up. So that when the Hajj would happen with the Prophet ﷺ, there would be no mixed agenda, there would be no confusion, there would be no problem that would occur there. Number two is obviously, in order to prep Mecca, for the arrival of 100,000 people into Mecca to perform Hajj, there were certain preparations that had to begin, certain expectations that had to be developed. And by these 300 people performing Hajj, what did he just prepare now? 300 volunteers, 300 staff members that could run the Hajj the following year. How do you run the Hajj? How do you volunteer at Hajj if you've never done Hajj? It's like me trying to lead a Hajj group if I've never done Hajj. That makes no sense. Right, So if I've done Hajj and I actually can lead somebody else, I can help somebody else perform the Hajj. Now you've got 300 staff members who know how to perform Hajj. So it was very, very insightful. It was very strategic. Um, and so that would, these are just a few of the wisdoms that were probably there in terms of the Prophet ﷺ's decision for himself not to go and kind of establish and reclaim the Hajj, but to send 300 of his trusted companions to go there, reclaim, establish the Hajj and start setting and laying the foundation, the groundwork for the monumentous event that would occur the next year, which we remember as Hajjatul Wida, the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet ﷺ. So with that, inshallah, we'll go ahead and conclude the Sirah class for this week, inshallah. What we're going to be talking about um, starting next week is Amul um, Wufud and the arrival of all the different delegations that were coming to become Muslim and to accept Islam and to learn about the religion. And there's some very beautiful, powerful stories that we will learn about there. So inshallah, we'll be continuing on with that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah bihamdihi. Subhanallahumma bihamdik. Nashar wa la ilaha illa anta nasafaru wa tawilaik. Sister Talat, you had a question. And Dr. Salah.